This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello and welcome to the History of Singapore. Special episode 1. A short history of elections in Singapore. Having a vote is one of the greatest privileges and rights of a citizen. It is your only real opportunity to exercise judgment over the government. Don't forget that your government works for you. It is your right and your responsibility as a citizen to vote. I don't care who you vote for, but you have to vote. The last presidential election was decided by 0.35% of the vote. That's 7,382 votes. 118,384 people did not vote. Your vote counts. Your vote matters. Our forebears fought and died for the right to vote. Because our fight is not yet done, it is never done. Democracy is not a destination. It is a process. You don't achieve democracy, you practice it. Democracy is a continuing process of seeking to triumph over the devils of our nature, over fear, over prejudice, over laziness. Every day we have to renew this battle and doubly so for elections, for this is the best way that we have worked out so far to directly translate democracy into governance. Machiavelli said that those out of power will do anything to get into power, while those in power will do anything to stay in power. Singapore, like anywhere else, is no different. In the history of Singapore, elections in Singapore have been a continued battle between the will of the people for a voice and the will of those who want to deny that voice, your voice. Specifically, there have been two turning points in Singapore's history of elections. The first was in the 1950s, specifically 1954-57, when the increasing demands of the people of Singapore for self-determination meant that universal suffrage could not be denied to us by the colonial government. In response, the colonial government kept the vote generally fair, but sought to limit our choice of candidates through legal measures like detention without trial. This policy was then continued and amplified by the PAP government. Until the 1980s, when the will of the people again became inexorable. Up to that point, elections were generally fair even if our choice of candidates was constrained. But from around 1986 to 1991, we see a second shift in which legal barriers were placed on the elections themselves to make them less fair. And that is basically the situation we remain at today. Before we start, it is important to note that voting was not something alien to Singapore. One reason why Singaporeans fought so hard to decide their government by voting is because Singapore has a long history of elections, almost as old as the colony itself. 
We know, for example, that the Singapore Sporting Club, today known as the Singapore Turf Club, founded 1842, a mere 20 years after Raffles walked up the beach, elected its leadership. So did the Singapore Cricket Club, founded 1852, and the Tangling Club, founded 1865, just before the end of Indian rule. In the Chinese language sphere, the history is just as long. We know that the secret societies had an election mechanism to pick their leaders. But of course, being secret, we don't actually know how. We know definitely that the guilds and clans associations elected their leaders, leading to the incredibly politicized atmosphere of Singapore Chinese politics in the late 1800s. The Ihohian Club, the club of rich Chinese businessmen, founded 1895, elected its leadership. And of course, all this was enshrined formally by the Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce in 1906, which continues to elect its leadership on the same principles of proportional representation today, which makes it, arguably, more democratic than the first-past-the-post system that we use for our country's government. By 1948, when the British introduced a new constitution and introduced limited elections to Singapore as a precursor to decolonization, elections were nothing new to Singaporeans. We had been doing it literally for over a hundred years. This is why government elections in Singapore were generally peaceful, smooth affairs. There was no real need to explain what or how or why. We already knew. Instead, the big challenge for Singapore has been to ensure that the elections are fair and that everyone has the right to vote, that is, universal suffrage. From 1948 to 1954, we did not have universal suffrage and not everyone who wanted to run for office was permitted to run. This is of course due to the Malayan emergency. The emergency regulations the precursor to the Internal Security Act, enabled the British government to arrest any politician they distrusted. This meant all left-wing progressive politicians. So in this period, you might say elections were fair as long as you were a right-wing pro-British politician. Okay, that's not really fair, but that's colonialism for you. As I mentioned in episode 1, Malaya was partitioned in 1946 and the rest of Malaya was given a new constitution based on the Federation Agreement. But Singapore was left out. And for various reasons, including to mollify the angry Singaporeans who were unhappy about being left out, but also in acknowledgement of the fact that Singapore was much richer, well-educated and easier to control, the British granted Singapore a constitution which was more progressive than the Federation's. On 18th July 1947, the Legislative Council Election Ordinance was passed in Singapore to provide a token number of seats, just 6 out of 22, to be filled by election, with officials and appointed members holding the other 16 seats. Our first general election was held in 1948. The Federation, on the other hand, didn't get local elections until 1951, and their first general election was not until 1955. Yet, the Federation gains independence first. 
this is an interesting contrast. As you'll see throughout the series, Singapore in this period tends to have the more progressive constitution with more rights for its citizens, but is never allowed to achieve independence on its own. The Federation, meanwhile, has a more conservative constitution with fewer rights for citizens, but is given independence so rapidly that the Malayan emergency is still underway in the middle of it. If you've heard episode 4 of this podcast, I think you'll have an idea of why. Now, the Legislative Council actually only had four officials. The Colonial Secretary, Financial Secretary, Attorney General and the Municipal Commission President. Then you had no less than 12 nominated members. That's a majority of nominated members. There were five civil servants nominated by the governor. The governor also nominated another four legislative councillors. Then you had three nominated business representatives, one each by the Singapore Chamber of Commerce, the Singapore Chinese Chamber of Commerce, and the Singapore Indian Chamber of Commerce. The 12 nominated councillors were used by the colonial government to stack the deck and ensure that the interests of Singapore's business and commercial community were represented. Or should I say, overwhelmingly represented. The fundamental problem was, of course, that voting was a privilege limited to British subjects. The process of becoming a British subject was long and arduous for foreign-born residents of Singapore, no matter how long they lived in Singapore. The process was arbitrary and subjective, requiring an applicant to produce four sponsors, and I quote here, of good standing who were British subjects and above 21, and these people had to attest to their good character. The sponsors could be rejected for any reason. What's more arbitrary than of good standing? Applicants also had to pass an English oral exam, for which they could be failed at any time with no recourse. For example, being unable to pronounce the word archipelago. Furthermore, naturalisation required an oath of loyalty to Britain not Singapore. Why, are Singaporeans, should they pledge loyalty to a foreign country that was so far away? Britons could come to Singapore and gain residency rights within two years while maintaining a home in the UK and loyalty to the UK. Yet people who had arrived in Singapore as small children, with no memory of any other country, lived in Singapore for 30 to 40 years, faithfully paying taxes, with complete loyalty to Malaya, with nowhere else to go, still had no rights. Even if you were a subject, voter registration was not automatic and the process was, of course, in English. If you don't know how to register, or you couldn't understand the registration form, too bad. Nor was voting compulsory. As a result, despite faithfully paying taxes and obeying the law and living peacefully in Singapore, the majority of people in Singapore had no citizenship rights, could not vote, and were unable to run for office. So this is the situation from 1948 to 54. We had elections. Your vote was free, your vote was secret. But the elections were not fair, nor did we have universal suffrage. And so the governments they produced were not representative. Singaporeans weren't stupid. The elections were meaningless. 
the elected members could be outvoted on everything. So even among those who could vote, registration and turnout remained very low. But the British wanted Singaporeans to practice governing, to prepare for self-government and eventually independence. They wanted Singaporeans to vote to legitimise the system the British were putting in place for Singapore's eventual independence. But Singaporeans couldn't be bothered with this sham. So what to do? Stay tuned. Welcome back. How did the British get Singaporeans to start voting? The solution to the apathy, they decided, was to introduce a new constitution that gave Singaporeans actual powers. The commission, chaired by the great British diplomat Sir George Rendell, decided that Singapore should be given partial self-government. Just enough responsibility to stimulate an interest in government, but not enough responsibility to actually matter. The other change was that the Rendell Constitution made registration automatic. The English language voter registration process had been a barrier, but now voters would be automatically registered. This expanded the electorate from 76,000 to 300,000. At the same time, by 1952, the Malayan Communist Party in Singapore was crushed and no longer a significant force. The British felt more confident in Singapore's security. They relaxed the use of emergency regulations. The emergency was for all intents and purposes over in Singapore. The number of detentions and deportations sharply decreased between 1952 and 54. Taken together, these factors worked. When people realised that they could actually vote for the people they wanted, and that these people were actually going to be given real responsibility, that the new assembly would have a majority of elected members, suddenly there was massive interest in the elections. Naturally, key portfolios, particularly of course law, security and finance, were held by the British. But in other areas, Singaporeans would get to decide, Singaporeans would be in charge, particularly in the areas of education and labour, two of the areas with the most discrimination against Singaporeans. And so Singaporeans got into elections in a big, big way. Politicians campaigned to large and enthusiastic crowds. Discussion and debate filled the pages of all the newspapers in all the languages. Passions ran really high. In fact, Singaporeans were so keen that the British actually got freaked out and started wondering where the heck all this passion came from. They had thought Singaporeans didn't vote because they were politically apathetic. They really didn't understand Singaporeans. And of course, they were completely shocked when Singaporeans voted overwhelmingly for left-wing, pro-Labour parties. But it's really no surprise. The choices were basically right-wing, pro-British parties like the Progressive Party or the Democratic Party, or left-wing, anti-colonial parties like the Labour Front and the PAP, or ethnic parties like AMNO, MCA, or Kasatuan Melayu. Why would you continue to vote for oppression? So the big winners were the Labour Front and the PAP. The 1955 election is, arguably, the closest we have ever come to a truly free and fair election. 
and it worked. This election produced our two greatest leaders, our first Chief Minister, the legendary David Marshall, the Lion of Singapore, and the first Leader of the Opposition, later First Prime Minister, the great Lee Kuan Yew. Marshall ran on a platform which promised to deliver self-government to Singapore. But he was much too anti-colonial for the British who were reluctant to let him run Singapore. To be fair, he was an inspirational leader but poor administrator. He would resign in 1956 after failing to win self-government in talks with the British. Lim Yew Hock became chief minister. But the big lesson from 1955 to 56 is that Singaporeans wanted politicians who represented them. They wanted left-wing, pro-labour, anti-colonial leaders to end systemic discrimination against the working classes of Singapore. But the British didn't want that. And Lim Yew Hock didn't want that. And Lee Kuan Yew didn't want that because they didn't fit the description of what people really wanted. So at the next round of negotiations in 1957, Lee Kuan Yew and Lim Yew Hock colluded with the British Secretary of State for the Colonies, Alan Lennox Boyd, to introduce a clause into the Agreement for Self-Government that prohibited anyone who had been detained without trial for subversion from standing in the next election. The three of them had a common enemy, the PAP left-wing. They knew that in a free and fair election, men like Devan Nair, Lim Chin Siong, Fong Sui Swan, S. Woodhull, and James and Dominic Putucheri would easily win and form the core of Singapore's next government. It is important to note that none of them were ever convicted of subversion. They were locked away because the British, Lee and Lim needed them out of the way. But back then you could still stand for election while detained. Kwame Nkrumah won the 1951 election in Ghana from his jail cell, becoming the leader of Ghana. Lim would have easily won an election in Singapore from jail. Hence the need for a clause to prevent those detained from running. The British agreed to take the blame for this. At the same time, the Constitutional Agreement of London also delivered a Singapore citizenship which provided an equitable path to citizenship for all residents of Singapore and any citizen above 21 could vote. And so here is the crossing point. This is the Janus phase of the 1957 Constitutional Agreement. It produced universal suffrage. It also took away fair elections. With one hand it giveth, with one hand it taketh away. Having seen in 1955 how the people of Singapore wanted to vote, the next election was rigged to ensure that they couldn't vote for the people that the British and Lim Yew Hock and Lee Kuan Yew did not want in power. The clause against subversives was the first in many legal measures since introduced to prevent fair elections and rig them in favour of colonial interests. So the 1959 elections were conducted without the PAP left-wing. The 1961 national referendum similarly limited options to just three choices, all of which were in favour of merger, and only one of them, the PAP option, was a reasonable choice. On 16th of September 1963, we became independent from the British Empire 
and merged with the Federation of Malaya, North Borneo and Sarawak to form Malaysia. We were finally an independent country. So really, 2015 is SG52. But the problem is that elections continued to be run along the same colonial model of using legal measures to limit the participation of opposition politicians. The 1963 elections were conducted in the wake of Operation Cold Store, which arrested all the important members of the opposition. Between 1963 and 1979, at least one round of detentions was conducted every year. None of the detainees have ever been brought to trial on the charges they were detained under. In the 1970s, a new tool was introduced, the defamation lawsuit. In 1973, Barisan Socialist electoral candidate Harban Singh was jailed for one month for criminal defamation of the Prime Minister. In 1976, Joshua B. Jayaratnam, the then Secretary General of the Workers' Party, was sued for defamation by Lee Kuan Yew. Jayaratnam would be sued and found guilty several times. In 1997, Tang Liang Hong was sued for defamation and fled the country, and so on and so forth. As PAP control tightened, there was less public scrutiny and debate over policies. From the 1970s, the PAP imposed a series of policies that, while at first glance seemed sensible, were implemented without the external review and oversight that a vibrant democracy and vigorous dissent would have provided. Many of the policies failed and had to be retracted eventually. For instance, the Second Industrial Revolution from 1979 to 1985 foresaw the information age and mandated wage increases and provided incentives for high-technology industrial capital. But its implementation was a failure. By 1985, there was hardly any technological upgrading, a 40% decline in investment, and a fall in demand for manufactured products. From 1984 to 85, real GDP growth fell 10%, from 8.2% in 84 to negative 1.8% in 85. Or take the Go Keng Sui report on the Ministry of Education 1978. This was designed to maximize the productivity of Singapore's population by focusing resources on its elite. But this of course undermined meritocracy and social mobility in Singapore's education system. The ending of Singapore's successful multilingual education system and the closure of Nanyang University was greeted with anger and dismay by many Singaporeans. Or take the HDB. In 1977, the PAP slashed the state grant to the HDB by more than half, from 68.5 million in 77-78 to 32.9 million in 79-80. The cost of an HDB flat rapidly rose, with a 38% increase in 1981 alone. CPF withdrawals sharply rose to meet this cost, with 28% of CPF contributions for 1983 being withdrawn for this purpose. And so after all these policy failures, the PAP were completely shocked when Singaporeans voted for opposition parties. But really, it's no surprise. The choices were between PAP politicians representing more of the same and opposition politicians demanding accountability and change. Why would you continue to vote for a demonstrated lack of competence? So the 1981 and 1984 elections produced, to date, our two greatest opposition leaders. J.B.J. Ratnam in Anson, and Cham Si Tong in Potong Pasir. To overcome this crisis of legitimacy, in the sense that two seats lost out of 79 is a crisis, from the mid-1980s, 
the PAP introduced policies that undermined the fairness of elections. First, the provision of welfare, including the maintenance and upgrading of HDB blocks, was deliberately tied to electoral support for the government through the introduction of town councils from 1986. HDB sale and resale regulations were introduced from 1989 to break up racial voting blocks. The building of new executive class flats was dispersed to prevent a concentration of upper middle class professionals willing to vote against the PAP. Second, group representation constituencies or GRCs in which a slate of MPs is elected rather than individuals were introduced. They were initially justified as enabling the creation of town councils, but in practice made things more difficult for small opposition parties already struggling to recruit and support candidates. When the GRCs came under fierce criticism for its obvious punitive implications for the opposition, the government switched tact and argued the GRCs were actually to ensure minority race representation in parliament. Ironically, there have been fewer minority MPs in Parliament since the introduction of GRCs. There were around 30% minorities in 59 and 63, for example, but only 20% in 1988 and 1991. Third, the colonial practice of nominated and non-constituency MPs was reintroduced. As with colonial Singapore, nominated MPs were supposed to contribute diverse, non-partisan voices into the legislative process. As I mentioned, in the colonial era, these in practice gave multiple votes to both the colonial officials, that is, one vote via appointed officials and one more via nominated officials, and to the business elite, one vote from the elected representative and one vote from the nominated Chamber of Commerce representative. Likewise, the nominated MPs or the non-constituency MPs give multiple votes to certain groups of Singaporeans who are represented both by the elected MP and by a nominated or non-constituency MP. Fourth, the elected presidency was introduced as a safety net in the event of an election loss. In particular, the president was bestowed with powers which ensured a final say over all major financial and personnel matters. Eligibility for the presidency was severely limited by strict requirements and screened by a presidential elections committee. Fifth, from 1988, changes to the electoral boundaries were no longer passed as a bill in parliament, but instead approved by the prime minister's office. The electoral boundaries delineation committee was renamed the electoral boundaries review committee, which submitted its first report to the prime minister's office on 25th May 1988. The report was accepted on 14th June 1988, which erased seven wards from the map. Anson, the working-class constituency which had elected David Marshall in 1961 and J.B. Jayaratnam in 1981, was erased, along with Bowen, Delta, Kerbong, River Valley, Rocho and Telong Ayer. Sixth, the Internal Security Act was used again. In particular, criticism of government policies by the Law Society and the Catholic Church was met with arrests under the Internal Security Act against lawyers and Catholic social workers known as Operation Spectrum. Finally, legislation was introduced to curtail the independence and ability of the Law Society and Catholic Church to participate in politics, including the Legal Profession Amendment Bill in 1986 and the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act in 1991. That's a lot of change. 
But that's why the period from 1986 to 1991 is so transformative. You can see how our current electoral system has been shaped by a purposeful attempt to raise legal barriers against opposition, dilute the opposition voice in parliament, and discourage people from voting opposition. So, the history of elections in Singapore can be summed up in two questions. Does every citizen have the right to vote? Yes, since 1957. This is not something to dismiss lightly. Remember, the USA did not get its Voting Rights Act until 1965. There was a time where we were more democratic than America. But second, can every citizen freely vote for the candidate of their choice? Perhaps only once in 1955. But the important thing is that your vote still counts. Your vote will be obeyed no matter who it is for. We are lucky. We are deeply privileged to live in a time and place when each and every vote is counted and can make a huge difference. There are many people living in other countries where they cannot vote, or where their votes don't matter, or where their votes are ignored, or where people complain that all the politicians are the same, so why vote? But, my fellow Singaporeans, your vote counts. Your vote is secret. Your vote matters. And you have a real choice with your vote. That is truly a privilege. Don't waste it. So I don't care who you vote for, but please, vote. As always, if you have any questions, comments or feedback, please email me at thehistoryofsingapore@gmail.com or visit my webpage at thehistoryofsingapore.com or please support my podcast at patreon.com slash pjthumb. Thank you very much. Back to the normal schedule next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.